0: Genesis 19, verses 1 through 25. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills. Lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I may not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us as we study this chapter May we see your goodness here, your justice, as well as your love and your mercy. And Lord, may reading this cause us to hope in Christ all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. But when you hear this story, and and even when I was at first studying it, I assumed, we all assume this is about the judgment of God, and it is. But to say that it is only about God's judgment, that would be to miss the entire point. The point of this chapter is God's salvation through judgment. Salvation and judgment are not separate from one another. They're not separate acts of God, like sometimes he's acting as judge, and sometimes he's acting to save people, just depending on, you know, how he feels when he gets up that morning. Rather, God's salvation always comes in the midst of his judgment. We say that the Lord, and we saw this in Genesis 6-9, through the Lord saved Noah through the watery judgment of the world. And we see in Exodus that the Lord saved Israel through the judgment of Egypt. We also know that the Lord saved you and me through the judgment of Christ. And he will complete that salvation through the judgment of the world on the last day. So if we miss the point of this story, that the Lord saved Lot through the judgment of these cities then we are distorting the goodness and the mercy of God that is being displayed here in the midst of his justice. So to be careful then to see the mercy of God shine through in chapter 19, we're going to examine this from the point of, of two main characters. First, the citizens of the cities, and we're using Sodom here as, as the stand in, the Senecdity, the, the, the one capital city representing the larger Sodom metro area, which includes Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim and Bela, which will later become Zoar at the end of the story. So that, that's our first character or subject. So if you're taking notes, you can write down at the top Sodom, and we're going to spend some time there. And then, secondly, the second half, or probably the second two thirds, rather, is Lot. This, this man that the Lord shows mercy to. I, I wanted to get to Lot's wife also this week because Jesus, in referencing this story, says, remember Lot's wife. So I wanted to remember, remember Lot's wife, but we don't have time. We'll get to her in a few weeks when we also look at Lot's daughters. So let's first examine what's happening here in Sodom and why it is that the Lord is coming down to preside as judge over these cities to begin with. We were first, as, as a people, as we've been studying Genesis, we were first introduced to Sodom back in chapter 13. So uh, Abraham and Lot were coming up out of Egypt. Their, their wealth was great. Their flocks were great. There was some dispute, and there was a decision about where Lot would go and where Abraham would go. And we were told of these cities of the valley that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that's all that was told to us in chapter 13. Then in chapter 14, we learned a little bit more about Sodom. So, we were introduced to the king of Sodom in chapter 14, and we learned there that the king of Sodom's name is King Bera, and we, we, if you remember, Bera means, or it's a variation on the word wicked or evil. So, the, the king's name is evil. Well, we keep going, and at the end of chapter 18, we learn that some outcry has arisen to the Lord So he has come down, remember that personal judgment that that we looked at last week, the Lord has come down to see for himself if the sins of Sodom are as bad as the outcry against them. The Lord has come down to preside as judge, just as he will in the last day, in the day of the Lord. But we need to see here at the beginning of chapter 19 that Sodom is on trial for a a whole host of. Of offenses. Sometimes I think we assume because of what happens in chapter 19, when the angels arrive into town, we assume that Sodom's wickedness is defined by their rebellion against God's design for sexuality. But if God has already come down because of the outcry against these cities, that is prior to chapter 19. Well, then the offenses are great. There's there's more than what we see in chapter 19. So to give the context of what we're seeing here. You have to imagine this. This is a court scene. And this man is on trial for a whole host of violent and wicked offenses. He is just an all-around villain. He goes to trial, and the judge calls him to the bench to ask a clarifying question, and he just spits in the judge's face. That's what the events of chapter 19 are dealing, are, are detailing for us. The, the sins of chapter 19, what we see here is Sodom spitting in the judge's face during their trial. So to see the sins that Sodom was on trial for prior to chapter 19, we have to go after chapter 19. We, have to, we look to the rest of the Bible to tell us what was happening in Sodom. And as we learned last week, the Lord uses Sodom frequently as a negative example. A warning against Israel. So the context of the descriptions that we're about to look at uh, nearly always comes when Israel is doing something Sodom-like. And the Lord is bringing that to their attention. Uh, and you can write these down. I'm not going to put them on the screen. But you can write the, the passages down to, for your own study later on. The first passage that we see referencing Sodom after the Pentateuch, after the first five books of the Bible, is in Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, we see one of these rebukes that God has for, for Judah. Uh, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them, for they proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Do you see that? Judah is guilty of doing what Sodom did. And what did they do? They were proclaiming their sin, not hiding their sin. Sodom was parading their sin. In other words, they're proud of who they are. They're boasting about their sin. So that's one of the issues taking place in Sodom. We, if we keep going from Isaiah, Isaiah, we go on to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14 says this of Sodom, They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. You hear that? So they're committing adultery, walking in lies, strengthening the hands of evildoers, so no one repents, no one turns from evil because they're being praised for their, for their evil. So, so first of all, here is sexual sin, but it's not homosexuality, is it? It's adultery that is at issue in Sodom, according to Jeremiah. And if you're curious as to why Sexual sin repeatedly comes up because you'll see it come up again and again uh, throughout the scriptures regarding Sodom and and Israel and, and, and us. We saw it in Romans 1. The reason why this is an issue in the scriptures is because it was an issue all the way from the beginning of Genesis. Man and woman coming together for fruitful multiplication is in Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth. That's the purpose of God's creation of humanity. And then the finer details of covenant union are are fleshed out more in, in Genesis chapter two. One man and one woman coming together for life. And then the first thing that the serpent does in Genesis chapter three is undermine that marriage. So marriage is really important to the Lord. It's primary in Genesis, it's primary to God. He has established The institution of marriage for his glory all the way at the very beginning of the creation of mankind. And adultery is a violation of that. It's an affront to God. Homosexuality as a sin doesn't come out of nowhere, though. It sprouts up in places where marriage itself is already being undermined. All right, So that's what's happening in Sodom. Adultery is an issue, according to Jeremiah. Secondly, Jeremiah points out this, they are walking in lies issue. This is the emperor has no clothes phenomenon. In any unjust, wicked society, you see this. Those in power are promoting lies and forcing the people to walk in lies. The third issue that Jeremiah points out is the strengthening the hands of the evildoers so that nobody repents. In other words, telling someone what you're doing is not sin, keep doing it. In fact, what you are doing should be celebrated by all. So that's happening in Sodom. And then we move over to Ezekiel to find out more of Sodom's record. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. So if you're, if you're keeping up, you can write this one down, Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, in Ezekiel just spells it out for us. Very plainly. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Okay, what is it, Ezekiel? What is the guilt of Sodom? Why was Sodom destroyed? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So, what the Lord has revealed to the prophet Ezekiel here is consistent with what we see in Genesis, isn't it? Remember, uh, when when Lot first saw the cities of the valley, when, when Lot chose in chapter 13 to move into the cities of the valley and move near Sodom instead of going to the hills, he made that decision based on the prosperity. That he saw there. He was drawn to the wealth. He was drawn to the ease of life. And Ezekiel says that ease of life led Sodom into pride and self-sufficiency. Even with their excess, with an excess of food, the poor and needy still didn't have enough. And they were oppressed. Ezekiel says they were haughty and did an abomination. The, the abomination, again, that's sexual sin, but the sexual sin is a result of haughtiness, their pride before God. Peter also tells us what was happening in Sodom. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says that the people of Sodom were ungodly. That's just kind of a blanket term. What does that mean? Does that mean that they were not godlike? Not, not, not really. Ungodly is the opposite of godly. And godly doesn't mean like God. Rather, godliness means right response to God, reverence for God. Oftentimes, we think of this idea as, as piety. So someone who is living in such a way that they honor God with their lives, we would call that godliness. Someone who is ungodly knows what it means to honor God, and yet they do not honor God. Just like the passage we read in in Romans chapter 1. In fact, Romans chapter 1 is like an encyclopedia entry for the word ungodly. Although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. So that's what what it means, ungodly. Peter is saying that's what's happening in Sodom. They know who God is. And we see that. Lot is going to say the Lord is coming. The Lord is here. They know who the Lord is. And yet they are rebelling against them. They are not honoring God. The last book of the Bible, again, mentions Sodom's sins. Uh, no, sorry, the last book of the Bible to mention Sodom's sins is Jude. So Revelation mentions Sodom, but doesn't tell us what was going on in Sodom. Jude does. Jude, verse 7, points out that sexual immorality is happening there of all sorts. We've already seen adultery is happening there. We've seen homosexuality is happening there. Uh, and and the, the pursuit of unnatural desires, as Jude points out. So let's take this all in. From Genesis to Jude, what is Sodom being judged for? Well, these five cities are prosperous. They are well provided for. They have everything they need. It's actually very similar to Eden. And like Adam and Eve in Eden, rather than seeing what they have as being a blessing from God, they, they've, pride, they've prided themselves and, and, and made themselves out to be God and thinking of themselves as gods now, rather than revering God as God, they, they're recreating the world around them. Not having dominion, there's something different about recreating the world, redefining the world, and having dominion over the world. They are doing the, the first. They're recreating, redefining the world around them. The material blessings that they have been given to be used for uh, provision, they're using for man's pretension. The gift of sexuality is being used to fuel man's corrupted desires and not for fruitful multiplication in the glory of God. The gift of language is being used to corruptly manipulate reality and to deny that God is judge. Humans are being mistreated rather than being loved as image bearers. All that God has given has been distorted and corrupted and turned back against God in rebellion. And it was hard as I was writing this, studying this, to not want to go on a diatribe about how all of these sins are present in our nation, aren't they? But I think you're smart enough to see that on your own. And if your imagination cannot get you from Sodom to Washington, D.C., just watch Tucker Carlson, that's why he's there, and he, he, he can show you, he can draw that, that line for you. Um, but that's not why we're here this morning. The reason I bring up that issue is not to commiserate with you and say, oh, woe is America, woe is America. Rather, if we understand that we live in Sodom, which we do, and I think you can see that from that list of sins, it's much easier for us to identify with Lot, because that's what this passage is for for us. Let's take a look at Lot. So that's part one. Now we're at Lot, part two. The first thing I want to show you about Lot is he is at ease in, in, in Sodom. I was gonna say Zion. He is at ease in Sodom. So Lot's sojourn in Sodom began in chapter 13 when he chose to live in the fertile valley rather than in the hills. And he made that choice knowing, if you'll recall, that Sodom was a wicked city. So it's, it wasn't a mystery to him. He knew what he was getting when he moved to Sodom, but the, the wealth there was tempting. And back, or thir- back in chapter 13, Genesis says that Lot pitched his tent near Sodom. Then when we got to chapter 14, if you remember when, Sod- when uh, Lot was kidnapped, we found there when the four kings of the east came through and attacked Sodom, we learned that they took Lot, who at that time had been dwelling in Sodom. So between chapters 13 and 14, Lot went from a tent outside of Sodom to a home in Sodom with a door that you can close and open, right? So this is a little bit bigger than his uncle's tent. And then then at the beginning of our chapter this morning in verse 1, we find that, that Lot is in the gates of Sodom when the angels arrive. Now what's significant about that? The gates of ancient cities were the places where the elders of the cities would sit. And that's where Lot is. He's sitting in the gate. Oftentimes, the gates are where disputes were settled because the city elders were there. The gates were very public places. Respectable witnesses were there. So business deals would happen in the gates. Trading would happen in the gates. Point being, Lot has gone from tent dweller to homeowner to something of a prominent businessman or judge or elder in Sodom. And add to that, he has, he's engaged his two daughters to two men from Sodom. So Lot doesn't just live near Sodom anymore. He is at ease there. He has made himself a home in Sodom. He has made himself a future there. And if that causes you to scratch your head and wonder, Lot, what are you doing? What are you, how did you end up investing your life in this place? Don't forget, we live in Sodom too. So we should be slow to pass judgment on Lot. The second thing we need to see about Lot is that he is righteous. And one of the issues that I introduced last week was the fact that Peter... In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says that Lot is a righteous man. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. So if you're you're in Genesis, that's the beginning of your Bible. You're going to go uh, all the way back to Revelation and then turn left. Just a few pages from Revelation, Jude, and then the three Johns, and then 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, says this. He says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot... Greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So there it is. Lot is a righteous man. Peter says it twice. It's not an accident. He's he's very clear for us. We, as Christians, hoping in Christ, are to identify with Lot. Now, what Peter means by righteous here is not, Lot was sinless. Obviously not, and we'll see that even more clearly at the end of the chapter. Righteousness, according to Peter... As it is according to Paul, as it is according to Moses, righteousness comes in and through Christ alone. So Jesus is the righteous one before God. To be righteous before God, then you must be in Christ. Or in Lot's case, he must his hope even way back when thousands of years before, his hope must have been in the coming Christ. So hoping in Christ is also hoping in the justice of God because the justice of God is seen in Christ. Lot knows that God is ultimately the righteous and just one and that God, Yahweh, he will bring judgment to the wicked. So how do we know that Lot is hoping in Christ? How do we know he's righteous? Well, Peter gives us a little bit of evidence there in the passage. The evidence that Peter gives is that Lot was distressed. He was troubled by what was happening around him. Lot probably troubled more by what was happening around him than some of us are about what's happening around us. So before you cast stones at Lot, remember you live in Sodom. But even more importantly, we know that Lot was righteous because of what happened to him. God rescued him. God's the judge, he's the one who determines righteousness or not. God, the judge, determines that Lot is righteous, and that's why he pulls him out of the fire by the scruff of the neck. So let's then take that biblically informed lens that the apostle has given us. Now let's look back at Lot's life in chapter 19. So you can flip back to chapter 19 now. I believe what Peter says because Peter is led by the Spirit, and that is a more authoritative opinion than my own. So, I'm going to take what Peter says and I'm going to let that be my glasses for reading chapter 19. So, let's look at chapter 19, looking for more evidence that Lot's hope is in Christ. And I think we're going to see it. It's not, it's not hard to see it if you're looking. So, at verse 1, we see it right away. Lot is sitting in the city gates, he's a prominent person of the city. And then these angels who look like men come into town. Now, Lot does not know that they're angels. When the Lord and the angels came to visit Abraham, Abraham knew that it was the Lord. Lot doesn't know here that these men are angels. The text does not say he lifted up his eyes. And remember, that's our clue. So he's not seeing with those eyes that see into the unseen realm. Lot's just seeing two guys coming into town in the evening. And he knows what you're supposed to do when someone's coming into town. Receive them. And the way he receives these visitors is exemplary. He shows hospitality to these angels, even without knowing that they're angels. Lot literally bends over to welcome them. He bows down to show these men respect and welcome and hospitality. And his hospitality is championed even in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some, like Lot, that's my parentheses there, Some have entertained angels unawares. I think that passage is talking about Lot. His hospitality continues in our text in verses 2 and 3 when he insists that these strangers stay in his home rather than the town square. So let me just say, if, if, if you are like me, and you're questioning Lot's righteousness, let me just ask you, when was the last time you're flying back into San Diego, you're, you're coming into the airport, the person you're sitting next to doesn't know where they're staying yet, the person on the plane doesn't know where they're going to stay, uh, they say, that we're just going to try to find a hotel, and you say, why don't you come to my house? Who's done that before? No hands. Okay. So, Lot's more Righteous than you and me. Lot's willingness to invite these strangers into his home shows that he does not live in fear. Rather, he lives with hopeful expectation. We have a lot of reasons, and as soon as I asked you that question, you were thinking, I have not because, right? Well, that because, those reasons that you came up for not inviting people into your home, strangers, Lot has none of those. His concern is more with these men and their well-being than his own. He wants to protect them from harm. He wants to feed them. He wants to care for them. And he, the way that, uh, that he keeps them out of the town square, says come to my home instead, it's showing that he, he wants to protect them. He has their well-being in mind. And then he prepares a feast for them in verse 3. And you might have noticed something about that feast. Look at verse 3. It almost seems irrelevant, but I'll tell you it's not. Lot gives these men unleavened bread with their feast. Now, why would Moses, the writer of this, led by the Spirit, why would he include the type of bread in the feast, but not any of the other elements of the feast? He didn't tell us if it's a goat or a lamb or a a cow. He doesn't tell us what kind of vegetables they ate. But he tells them what kind of bread. Now, remember who the target audience of Genesis is, This was written for Israelites, preserved for us, but written for Israelites. And on the night that judgment came to Egypt, and the Israelites were rescued out of Egypt, they ate unleavened bread with their Passover meal. That unleavened bread then here is a clue for Israel that they are also to identify with Lot in this story. They're to see themselves as a people whom God rescues through judgment. Well, so far, so good for Lot. We're seeing evidence of his righteousness here, evidence that he's hoping in Christ. Up to this point, Lot has shown that he is someone living in the hope of Christ. He shows kindness to strangers. He's generous toward them. But then, verse four, the chaos arrives. All of the men of town arrive at his door. And Moses is clear here. Every single household Every single household in town is represented, which is to show us that there is none in Sodom who is righteous, save Lot alone. All of the men arrive at the door to demand that Lot turn over his guests so that they can have their way with him. And I want you to see here in verse 6, Lot is courageous. I think we, we get so disgusted by what's, what's happening with the, the men that want to rape the 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 angels, that we overlook Lot's courageous entreaty. He goes outside the house alone, all by himself, and he faces down the entire mob, the entire city. And then in verse 7, he confronts them in their sin. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. He's calling them, turn from your sin. This is a courageous message of repentance, And again, I'm not sure if I would have the same valor that he does here. And then, okay, (laughs) then we're reminded that Lot is still the same Lot from chapter 13, okay? He's still a self-interested pragmatist. Look at verse 8. He knew it was coming. Take my daughters instead. only do nothing for these men nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my house. Now, it's likely that something is happening here that is cultural and foreign to us. One, one commentary points out that the reason that Lot offers his daughters is because he knew that these, these uh, women, his daughters, being betrothed to two men of Sodom would be protected by the city dwellers. It is, there's evidence that If there's a betrothal already, to violate that betrothal would be met with the death penalty. And so, if he knows that he's playing the the laws of Sodom against the people of Sodom, this is a sort of bluff. He knows that they're not going to do anything to daughters, but he's still, I mean, he's still putting his daughters in very clear danger, isn't he? This is a clear transgression of fatherly protection. But look at the reasoning that he gives. And I think we see a little bit of what's happening in his heart here. Look at the reason he says that he won't turn these men out to to the the city. Look at verse 8. For they have come under the shelter of my roof. That's his reasoning. And I think what we see here is that hospitality is such a significant value, such a high priority for Lot... That protecting his guest is as important, if not more important, than protecting his family. Normally, these two virtues do not compete with one another. But because of the wickedness of Sodom and the chaos that that has brought about, these two values, these virtues, have now come into conflict. They're intersecting with one another. And so to us, what we see here is absolutely appalling, To us, we see no conflict. We see we would never hand over our daughters, and I hope you wouldn't. But then we're not a very hospitable people, are we? We think more in terms of individualism, more in terms of our family's well-being, and less in terms of showing kindness to strangers. So Lot is torn in a way that we wouldn't be because he has competing values. I'm not defending him, okay? Offering up his daughters is absolutely atrocious, but culturally, this is a serious moral dilemma for Lot. This strange offer, I think, is evidence that when Peter points out that Lot's soul is greatly tormented, I think this is what he's talking about. He's stuck between two horrible options. Well, as it turns out, his, his, his bluff or his wager, whatever you want to call, it, call it, it, turns out kind of okay for his daughters. The mob does not want his daughters, and in fact, now the mob is enraged because Lot has judged them. He has he's called them out for their sin. Look what they say in verse 9. This fellow came to sojourn, and now he's become the judge. Some translations say he came to sojourn, he is always judging us. What's being communicated is that they know what's happening. They they they've heard Lot preach before. They didn't like it last time. He's warned them about coming judgment before. They didn't like it then. He's always sitting in the city gates, casting his moral judgments. And they've had enough from the outsider. They don't want to hear it this night. And so they go in to attack Lot if they can't have the visitors, they will have Lot instead. And this is when the, the messengers, these angels from God, go into rescue. They pull Lot into the house, blind the men outside, and then you can just see the, the absolute j- just depth of their depravity. They're still groping at the door. They don't receive correction when correction is given to them. They don't receive discipline when the discipline is given to them. It shows that they are not hoping in the Lord in any way. They do not receive the Lord's discipline. Still groping at the door, still seeking to sin. And then the angels, they pull Lot in and they tell him the reason why they're in Sodom to begin with. Look at verse 13. We're going to destroy this place. That's why we're here. The outcry of Sodom has reached the Lord. And then in verse 14, we see more evidence of Lot's faith. Look at verse 14. He believes what the angels say. They tell him, gather up your family because judgment is coming. And what does he do? He goes to get his family because judgment is coming. His obedience is evidence of his faith. He goes out to get his family, including his sons-in-law, so that they can all leave town before judgment. I think that glaring offense of what Lot does with his his daughters there, that, that offer of his daughters, and then because of what happens later on in the cave with his daughters, everything else that Lot does, we sort of ignore. Everything else that he does that shows evidence of his faith, we ignore. The fact that he believes the angels when they say the Lord is bringing judgment, that's a sign of faith. And that, that sign of faith is the grounding of his righteousness. Or his faith, rather, is the grounding of his righteousness. Contrasted to Lot's belief in the coming judgment of God is the unbelief of the sons-in-law. So they, you saw they think he's joking. So when he goes outside, so he's inside, and he goes back outside with all of the mob in order to get his sons-in-law. He's calling out to them, come on, it's time to go. The Lord has arrived. The Lord is here. The Lord has brought justice. The Lord has also brought salvation. And they just think he's joking. And Peter tells us that this is the case when it comes to God's judgment. He tells us that scoffers and mockers deny the coming judgment of God. But believers know that God is coming. And that leads us to what? To lives of holiness, lives of godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. Anticipating the return of Christ also means that we are anticipating the judgment that he brings. So in verse 14, Lot even says to his sons-in-law, it is of the Lord. The Lord is the one, Yahweh is the one bringing this judgment. Lot knows the Lord. He's hoping in the justice of God. So you could almost say he's evangelizing, right? His son's in law. Well, in verse 15, right before the sun comes up, the angels tell Lot, okay, time's up. It's time to go. And then Lot ran with them. No, look at verse 16. But he lingered. Now, I have just spent the last 10 minutes reviewing, maybe more, reviewing the evidence of Lot's faith. Lot has preached against the wickedness of the Sodomites. He has evangelized his sons-in-law. He's warned them of the coming judgment, telling them of the good news of the salvation that the Lord has brought. The Lord is here. He's redeeming us. He's saving us from coming judgment. Lot believes that it's happening. He trusts in the righteousness of God. He trusts in the salvation that God has provided for him. And because of Lot's hope in the Lord, I think we can actually see that Lot is righteous in Christ. But when it's actually time to go, when it's time to separate himself from the comforts of home and the world and to entrust himself to these rescuing angels, Lot lingers. He lingers in Sodom. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. Lot's spirit is willing. His heart believes. He knows that the Lord is rescuing him, that the Lord is bringing judgment. In his heart, he believes the good news. But in his flesh... He looks, he looks at the business he's built, he looks at all that his family has accomplished and accumulated over the years. He looks at the fact that he came into this town a shepherd that nobody knew, a stranger, a sojourner, and now he's earned the right to sit in the city gate. He has built wealth here. His life is comfortable here. His wife has made their home beautiful here. His daughters are engaged to men from this town. The weddings are coming soon. Lot thinks of his employees who work for him and how they rely on him. Everything that he has is about to be burned up. He knows, he remembers, I've, I've prayed that God would bring justice. I just didn't think it would happen like this. He's prayed that the Lord would bring deliverance, but when the moment comes, he lingers. Let me ask you, if the Lord were to return today and tell you it's time to go, what would you hold on to? And if you say, oh, nothing, well, I would follow the Lord immediately. I would, okay, let me put it this way. If I said Delcero is sending a missions team to Afghanistan to plant a church, will you go? Okay, now that's different, isn't it? What are your reasons for not going? Those are the things that cause lot to linger. Is it your wife, your kids, living close to extended family? Your work? The living close to target? <laughs> the safety and security of health insurance and hospitals? Have you made investments that you want to see come to fruition? What, what, would, what would tear at your soul? What would cause you to think twice if you had to leave to follow Christ's call? I'm not saying being called to missions is the same as Judgment Day. What I'm trying to do, I'm trying to expose for you, diagnose for you where your affections are. Because those affections will and do cause you to linger. Your heart And my heart is a lot more like Lot's heart than we would ever care to admit. You and I are not as committed to Christ as we have convinced ourselves into believing. You are not as devout as you think you are. But there's good news here. The Lord rescued Lot anyway. And if you are in Christ, he will rescue you. If we have learned anything from Genesis, it's this. We are justified by faith alone. And it is faith in Christ... That unites us to Christ and to our deliverance in Christ. It's not the intensity of your faith or the, the purity of your faith. It's not the quantity of your faith. It's not even your faith. It's the object of your faith. It is Christ Jesus who saves. Lot is saved. He's rescued because his hope is in Christ. That's it. The salvation of God is not dependent on us being. Totally 100% sold out for Jesus. The salvation of God is dependent on Jesus. You are saved by faith through union with Christ. You are saved through trusting Christ, even when your motives are mixed, even when you are not perfectly sanctified in yourself. You are justified in Christ. Lot is justified in Christ. And so what we see happening here in our text is that despite Lot's lingering, God's mercy is more, isn't it? Look at verse 16. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. That is the most beautiful picture of the redemption that we have in Christ, isn't it? The irresistible mercy of God. The men seized Lot and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. Do you think of God's mercy like this? Oftentimes we see God's mercy only in terms of those who are desperately needy, on their face, crying before God, pleading for his mercy. That's not what's happening with Lot. He's not begging for mercy. He's lingering. He's hesitating. He's vacillating between Christ and the world and Christ and the world. But the irresistible mercy of God rips him away and burns away those things that compete for his affections. You're starting to understand the nature of God's mercy, He didn't choose to go away. You see that? He was pulled away in God's kind and severe mercy. If necessary, because He loves you, He will burn away the idols of your heart. If you are his, if you by faith belong to Christ, then you are a child of God. And the Lord is your good father. He will discipline you. If you're sitting in the middle of the road, playing in the dirt, he will grab you by the arm, jerk you out of oncoming traffic or oncoming judgment. He will bring you home. God's grace is sovereign over your life. His mercy grabs you by the scruff of the neck. The Lord will save his home Every last one of us. So then, what do we do about those things that we've just been told are causing us to linger? And we say, well, the Lord is going to save me anyway. Might as well just embrace my lingering. No. How do we know? Because Lot's soul was tormented. Do you want to live in torment? <laughs> have, you, have you felt that before? That torment, you don't want to live in torment. Even if you're being saved, you want to live in such a way that you can't experience the joy of assurance. You can live in joy instead. But you must let go of the things that you're lingering, that are causing you to linger. Pray then that the Lord would help you to hold loosely those things. It's not wrong to love your wife and your husband and your children. It's not wrong to love comfort or safety or even your work or your home or your hobbies, your investments. Those are all gifts from the Lord for you to enjoy. But Christ is greater. He's the greater gift. These gifts from the Lord, these earthly things that he's given us, they cannot compete with the giver of the gifts. So We need to see that the earthly blessings that God has given us are meant to point us to thankfulness in Christ. And cause us to rejoice in Christ. God's gifts, the things of earth that we enjoy on the earth, they're not ends in themselves. If we make them ends in themselves, we will be tormented. They will never satisfy. They will cause us to linger in the world and despise Christ when the Lord is calling us to himself. To delight in him and be satisfied in him. So Lot, because of the mercy of God, don't miss that. The Lord being merciful to him, Lot is rescued by God. His wife and daughters are rescued as well. And then honestly, I don't know why what happens next happens next. It took me a while. The angels get him out of the city. The the smell of sulfur starts to to kind of come up in, in, in the heavens Maybe that first drop of fire is coming from the sky and they're telling him, you need to go now. Run for the hills. Run for the mountains. Very, very, very similar to what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. When you see the abomination of desolation set up, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Exact same instruction that the angels are telling Lot. Flee to the mountains. Destruction is coming. Run to the hills. And you would think at this point, Lot... He's already left everything behind, right? There's nothing there. It's all going to be burned away. He would just do what they would say. Okay, I'll go to the hills. That's not what happens. Look at verses 18 through 22. Lot starts negotiating. Who? This is where I started to get mad at him. I have grace for Lot and everything up to this point. But he, when he starts negotiating with, these, with the angels who have already rescued him, showing him mercy. I get a little frustrated. So he starts negotiating this move to Bela, which is the the little city on the edge of the five cities. What what he says is, I don't think I have time to make it to the hills. Let me just go to that city. Uh, He says he's afraid to go to the hills. Whatever it is that drew Lot to Sodom, though, instead of the hills back in chapter 13, I think is still what's drawing him to the cities. His soul's tormented. Even though he's literally just been rescued from a city that is about to be burned to the ground, he can't shake that, the illusion of safety that the city gives. So he says, let me go to that little city and don't destroy it. And what gets me, what drives me crazy here is not that they, the angels could just say no, right? They have the authority to bring fire from heaven. They have the authority to say no. But they don't. They, they drag him out of Sodom and allow him to go to the little city. Which Zoar so means little. So, why do they let him do this? What is this passage about? It's about God's judgment and God's mercy, right? And if we think back to Abraham's negotiating in chapter 18, this is Lot's version of that negotiating. Only Lot isn't saying, Will you rescue the city if there are 10 righteous there? He's saying, Will you rescue the city if I move there? And so the Lord says, Yes. Lot's allowed to go there. And the point is that God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked, just as he promised Abraham. Abraham prayed, Don't destroy the righteous with the wicked. The Lord is answering Abraham's prayer. Here is a righteous man going into the little city, and the Lord is going to spare this city. If I can put it this way, the love of God for the righteous is greater than his desire to destroy things. And through that, we see that the mercy of God is being displayed, don't we? Through Lot's foolish request. How merciful is God? Abraham wanted to quantify the mercy of God. And here we see the Lord is so merciful, he will allow Lot to go to Zoar so that he can show the wideness of his mercy. I told you this passage is about two characters, right? The cities of the valley and lot, but really it's about God. God's patience, his goodness, his love, his mercy, all of that is seen in his judgment. Sometimes we think of the judgment of Sodom as just, God hates Sodom. God does hate sin. But the judgment of Sodom shows us the mercy of God and in seeing these glimpses of the mercy and the justice of God intermixed in a way that is inseparable we also see glimpses of the father and the son let's look at that in the last few verses look at verse 23 the son s u n had risen on the earth when lot came to zoar now the sun rising here this is this just shows you that moses has beauty in mind he's a good writer And he wants to create for us the imagery of what's happening. And the sun rising here is a picture of God bringing light to all that is happening. The sun reveals what was hidden in the darkness. The sun also reveals the justice of God. Zephaniah 3.5 says, Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. And with the rising sun comes the justice of God and the judgment of God. And then verse 24 says, Then the Lord, this is curious, the Lord rained, down, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now, first of all, that juxtaposition of raining and fire, that's an echo of the flood from, from Genesis 6 through 9. But unlike the flood, when the Lord remained in heaven and poured out his wrath, this time he has come down personally to bring judgment. The Lord and his two angels are still down there somewhere. So when the Spirit through Moses tells us that the Lord rained down sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, we're seeing that God is both present on the earth and at the same time ruling, reigning from heaven simultaneously. How can that be? How is the Lord in both places? Physically manifest in one and yet sovereignly ruling from the other. The Lord is one, but the Lord is Father, Son, and Spirit. And then verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Total, absolute destruction. A judgment like this, listen, a judgment like this is coming when the Lord comes again he has promised. And as in Sodom, so it will be in the end, those who hope in Christ will receive the mercy of God, no matter how small your faith is. The reason why the Lord tells us the faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains is because it's hard for us to even come up with that, isn't it? So no matter how small your faith is, no matter how strong your faith is. If your faith is in Christ, you have already received the mercy of God. Because for those in Christ, judgment's already happened. Christ took on that judgment at the cross. But for those who deny the power of the cross and deny that Christ is king and who scoff at the Lord's coming judgment, like Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, you'll be overthrown. My invitation to you then is turn to Christ today. Receive him today. Be assured of his mercy today. Let's pray.